Welcome to episode 12 of Reproducibility. This week we welcome back Ivan Fliss um, because we had too much to talk about in our last episode um, and we just we just needed um, to, to talk a bit more. Um, I'm joined today again by Sophia. Hi. Cruvel, yes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and Sam Parsons. Hi. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, it's it's Friday afternoon. Um, I think Sam's feeling it today. Yeah, <laughs> drinking his just, coffee. Just a little bit. It's been a long week. Huh? Yeah, I still don't know why. It's like the end of term, so there's actually not much to do. Yeah. But I think sometimes but, when like the stress actually stops, you feel the most tired. And it's like yeah. dark at three o'clock now, so mm. you just kind of like you start to shut down a bit before you've actually really got started working. Yeah, or at least. Yeah. The royal you, by which I think <laughs> the uselessness that I am. And and Sophia had a lot of deadlines this week. Literally all of them. All of the deadlines and coursework and craziness and it's just. Oh. <laughs> then I, I'm not going to say anything about my week because I, I went to the farmers market and I read a lot and uh, <laughs> just rested and did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I think you deserve that. Yeah, I am jealous, but jealous in like a a way that <laughs> that is, is very nice towards you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I, get, I I definitely get what you mean. <laughs> okay. Um. Well, yeah. I've I I feel a bit like Sam, but I I feel a bit. Uh, it's okay. It's Friday. It's a Friday afternoon. I feel like a bit. I think next time we record at this time, I want to have a beer or a cider. Drinking episode. Ooh. No apparent reason. <laughs> well, we are four. <laughs> four beers, gonna, four psychologists. <laughs> four beers each, right? Yes, four <laughs> times four. <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let, let's maybe go into um, safer waters and talk a bit about open science. Um, that is that safer waters? More familiar waters. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't question. Um, so, last week we, we, well, two weeks ago, we covered a great range of history and philosophy and we all were... Uh, uh, very impressed, um, and uh, I feel more okay now with with the concept of history and philosophy of psychology. But we've never really got to talking about how that relates to open science. So I guess um, even the first the first thing probably our listeners and and we want to know as well is during the time you spent studying kind of the past, do you feel like you learned anything about how we should act to kind of influence the future or to implement these kind of open science changes that a lot of us early career researchers really, really want to, to realize in the next few years? Yeah, um, I mean, that, that's a really good question, which I think you can answer it in all kinds of ways. Um, but I, so I think, I think psychology is now really, um, a super exciting field because of the whole open science movement uh, initiatives and uh, all the things that are happening and the kind of discussions that people are having and that are kind of getting 
I guess, normalized, uh, even even if you're pursuing your work or your degrees or publishing or etc. Uh, there's this whole community of people where where you can get into um, debates or or to learn or just to have a feeling of a community where they talk about stuff like um, like the big questions, where 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 is the field going or um, is it working properly or how can we improve it or what are the ideals that we want to orient ourselves towards as a, as a community of experts and, and as people who share like a professional identity. Um, and I think if you look at, at various, I mean, historical episodes, this is what scientists very often do. And I think when you, when I read good histories or when I want to write good histories, this is the kind of work that I get really excited about, right? Um, where uh, uh, scientists talk science to each other in a really open and a really critical way where they have a, like an optimistic view of, of something that they want to pursue and something that they want to improve. So I'm, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think for me, open science was, um, I was listening to, I was listening to the interview. Oh, let me just turn off my cell phone. Um, so uh, I was listening to the interview with um, Fiona Fiedler on The Black Goat. Um, and uh, she was comparing uh, the current uh, reproduci reproducibility crisis with uh, uh, debates about null hypothesis significance testing and how to, f to her it feels like it's a very different kind of thing that's happening nowadays. And I think that the conclusion that they, that they uh, that they had in the end is that the community is what makes the difference. And I think that that's really true because there are all these kinds of different voices and all these kinds of different debates that, that people are having and that are, that they're being drawn to. So I think that's pretty exciting. Mm. Um, you, you talked, you, you said something about kind of these episodes of where scientists talk science to each other, which I, I thought was really, really nice way to, to say, but I guess as, at least from my perspective, like as an early career researcher, I kind of feel like you're like, we're like, we're in a movement and this is once in a, you know, once in psychology and we're also special and we're going to make this work. And, and I guess it's quite new to me to hear like, oh, this happens all the time or, you know, that happens every, you know, there's a cycle of kind of renewal and, and debate and when scientists talk science to each other. Um, and so, did, and are you saying that these kind of recur time and time again, these kind of times when these conversations are happening? Yeah, I mean, um, so this is a really, this is a really big debate in, um, among historians and philosophers uh, where the discussion can be subsumed around two models of how science works. One is the continuity model, so the idea that we just progressively built up uh, knowledge systems and that we always build on what was happening before and the other the other model is the discontinuity model where there is a huge crisis and we break everything down and start from scratch um, and I think I, I, I don't think you would find many historians or philosophers who would subscribe to one or the other so it's always some kind of a mixture you can I, I always like to think about it it's like a the philosophers and historians of science, nature versus nurture debate, right? Um, so, uh, but it, it's, it's definitely, um, I think, um, 
um, uh, people who investigate science in, in a historical or a philosophical way tend to go to crises uh, to build up their accounts. Uh, because then, then you get these kind of fundamental discussions and then you also get the big changes that have an impact on what's going to happen afterwards. Um, so there's definitely this kind of a sense of something is happening. Um, I also, I mean, I, I think by nature or whatever, I'm quite cynical. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I also become very enthusiastic when I read um, about the kind of improvements or the kind of goals that uh, the open science community sets for itself and how to improve the science that, that's being done. Um, and uh, I'm always thinking, yeah, that's really nice, but is it going to work? And are there all these other problems? And, and movements like this usually uh, lose steam at some point, and it's a very big question if, if it's actually going to improve the things that people really care about. And psychology in the 20th century especially has a horrible track record um, of pushing a lot of stuff under the carpet and just pretending uh, that, that it's not an issue. Um, Mm. So yeah, it's it's exciting. I don't know. Um, I I try to I try to be optimistic and I try to kind of kind of look at the open science movement as as the newest installment of the exciting thing in, in psychology, right? Whatever whatever comes out of it later. So do you mean by things that are that were sort of swept under the carpet? Do you mean these kind of critiques that are basically similar to what? Um, people are criticizing in the last couple of years? Or yeah. is there, is there some, was there something else that was swept under the carpet as well? I mean, there, there's, there's uh, very many things, I think, that were, that were swept under the carpet, um, depending on the, de depending on the uh, uh, time that you look into as psychology was developing as a, as a discipline as, and as different people were participating in, in kind of creating this idea of psychology or setting the, the agendas for the kind of research lines that you're going to have later on. Um, so you have that from the end of the 19th century to today. I don't know, uh, some of the fundamental discussions about psychophysics and is psychological measurement possible uh, uh, was a huge topic um, at the end of the 19th century where, where psychology was formed as a separate academic discipline, uh, like this whole uh, Kant view that, uh, that that psychology as an empirical science is an impossibility uh, and all these German philosophers saying yeah but we could maybe do these kinds of measurements and maybe that would make for a scaffolding of, a, of, a, of an empirical science to come. Um, this kind of discussion that they had was never actually resolved. It was, um, you would get some historians who would say it was ignored, it wasn't resolved. It's just that Philosophers who said that measurement was possible just went their merry way and continued doing me measurements without answering the substantial criticism. Um, and these kinds of debates, so um, I'm thinking here, um, uh, okay, I'm, I'm bad with names again. I'm going to look up her name as, as I'm talking. Um, but there's a, there's a historian who calls this um, ignoring the oppositions, basically. Um, and um, you could say that any scientific discipline, it's not that psychology is special with that, is that scientists go about ignoring the oppositions that really bring down the whole uh, uh, project that they're trying to pursue. So that's in some sense natural, but in other sense it creates problems down the road. So 
the, the example we discussed to death is null hypothesis significance testing, right? Um, but there's more. Uh, operationalization, construct validity theory, um, yeah, these big methodological questions that I care about. Uh, so, yeah. but, but you say then, in general, this is not unique to psychology? This is something that happens in, in other sciences as well? I, I think so. I think so. So, I mean, that's, that's at least my impression that um, Gail Hornstein, that's her name, the historian, uh, who talks about uh, ignoring oppositions uh, in, a, in a paper from 1988. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it happens in, in the other sciences too. It's, it's this, I think this is, this is the really super interesting thing about uh, looking at scientific disciplines um, uh, as communities, um, because communities have to set goals for themselves, right? So there needs to be like a set of objects of research that you're pursuing, the sense that we're all participating in it together. We set the rules on what does what what counts as evidence, what counts as good practice, uh, what counts as a sensible question to ask. What are the the possible answers that we can give to these questions? Who are the people who are relevant in these discussions? Whose answer counts more than other people? So there's always like this prestige component of some people. Uh, we should listen to their questions and their answers a bit more. So I think in any science you have this, and I think that comes by definition by ignoring certain parts of the uh, object of research, so cutting it down to something that's manageable, basically. So you do have to ignore something. So I don't think that's to say that, uh, oh yeah, psychologists have all these uh, philosophical unresolved problems in the kind of research that they do. That's not saying much. I think all scientists have that. It's just a question if that's the, the what what the emphasis is on correctly, and I think in, in times of crisis, you would get the accounts of um, like the oldest account of this this uh, not not the oldest but the most famous account of this discontinuities is Kuhn again that I mentioned before in the last podcast, and he 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 basically didn't say that uh, a scientific paradigm falls when um, when there's an anomaly but when uh, a number of anomalies accumulate that can't be explained within the paradigm that existed before. So it's not like one unresolved opposition or unresolved question is going to bring down uh, a whole discipline or a whole uh, theoretical system or whatever, but you're going to have much more inconsistencies than that. Um, I mean, and now this leads, leads to the question, do I think that the current crisis is a paradigmatic problem? Um, I would. I, that's. I, I'm. I'm allergic to paradoxes. <laughs> mm. Can I? Can I just um, go back to you were talking a bit about measurement issues, um, and I guess for for. Um, I'm just going to treat our listeners like me. <laughs> that I was like, oh, that's really interesting, and I was like. Oh, uh, wait, what? <laughs> you know, we currently, we're starting, a lot of people are saying that we're going into a kind of measurement crisis, that that should be the next thing. And I think Sam's vigorously nodding um, next to me. So was was the kind of conversations they were having back then similar to the ones that we are going to, we are trying to talk about now or starting to put that into the forefront or were they kind of very different? I mean, um... So there, there are similarities and there are differences. Um, it's um, as reading. Um, there's this big new book about Wundt, and I know mentioning Wundt in these discussions it sounds like the most boring thing to do. 
and that's my reaction to it. I also. I, oh, I, I just don't know who he is. <laughs> Do you know who he is, Sam? Sounds of psychology. Yeah, really. Leipzig Laboratory, 1897. Wait, wait, wait. What, what did you just say? He's, he's one of the founders of uh, experimental psychology in Germany at the end of the 19th century. Um, well, at so, least I'm not the only one. At least Sam, Sam, do you, did you know who Wundt was? I have no idea. I, okay. I, I'm lost with names at the best of times. Okay, that's okay. I'm going to give more context. Sorry. It's probably not just, just names. No, no, I'm, no. Just gonna, I'm just going to put that into... <laughs> so, he, he's a really, really famous German psychologist from the end of the 19th century who basically educated most of the big names in American psychology at the beginning of the 20th century. And the Americans really care about Hund uh, because the, the story goes, the, like the standard narrative of American psychology and basically psychology in general is that, that he founded the first laboratory and educated the grad students that then went to America uh, and founded their own laboratories that gave us APA and psychology and et cetera during the 20th century. Um, I feel like I'm starting to feel like people are telling me like stuff like stuff I should really know. Yeah. Like I'm feeling very, very, very uneducated at the moment. Um, but yeah, but no, I mean, no. all, all these all these beginning psychologists, like the, the early psycho psychologists, were all philosophers originally, right? So right, you're yeah. really scared of them. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I, I um, ignore how what were you just saying? Ignoring the opposition, uh, but they're not my opposition. <laughs> I just ignore things. <laughs> so I just I just, want, I just want to say that I was trying to tie it back to the previous episode. I wasn't being mean to Amy. <laughs> I I don't worry. It's fine. I go over it. Start slamming each other. Let's go back to measurement. I, I started. I love that I started this with apologizing for talking about Wundt and then realizing that maybe we should talk about Wundt. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Wundt is like the stereotypical topic. Oh, that, that's a historian of psychology. Nobody cares about Wundt. Yeah. So Wundt scholarship is a mm -hmm. part of history of psychology that's pretty big and that's pretty developed. And there's a lot of papers and books about Wundt scholarship because he's lauded as the father of psychology. Um, but anyway, so there's this new book that came out um, about Wundt, um, uh, reappraising basically what Wundt did, and, and it's what it what uh, what Sophia just said. It's that he was a philosopher first. He was a philosopher at the end of the 19th century, um, and this is coming from this Araujo's reappraisal of Wundt, um, um, who basically. Um, he was doing empirical psychology um, as part of his philosophy. So he had this idea on how do you build uh, epistemology or a metaphysical system of worldview. Um, so he had this, these really grand ideas that you have from philosophers at the end of the 19th century, especially in Germany. Um, and for him, empirical psychology was just one part of the things that you needed to be able to be a good philosopher, right? Um, so they had this whole crisis of old metaphysical systems are wrong, speculative metaphysics is wrong, um, uh, armchair philosophy is, is in the shits, we don't know what to do with it, we have all these schools and we don't know how to deal with it. Why don't we replace all that epistemological and metaphysical babble with an empirical psychology that's going to tell us how people think? And if we understand how people think, then we're going to be able to build up better philosophical systems, right? Um, and this was a this 
like this kind of thinking, it's really, for me, and I think for most people who are educated as psychologists at the end of the 20th century or in the beginning of the 21st century, this sounds rather insane, right? Um, having this kind of grand motivation for doing psychology. It's, it's very different than, than what we have nowadays. Um, and I think, um, how did I get to this for measurement problem? I think discussing something like a measurement problem that, that, that we have as a, as a discipline as a whole is going much closer to these kinds of big questions mm -hmm. that we have to solve uh, before we can pursue our little uh, empirical lines of research in different kinds of psychology. Um, and I think that's pretty exciting. Like, I think, um, yeah. I think, I I think, think it, it puts a lot of things into question as well. I think things like measurement, you can see why people so quickly ignore things. <laughs> because like, if I tell you, like for me, there's currently been a big debate about how do you measure social media use? And that's, I know that's like really granular in comparison to the questions you're asking. <laughs> but like, if somebody says, you can't measure this, and you're just like, but I want to. And I want money for this. Like this is my life. <laughs> you know, you're just uh, going like ah. No, no, no. I mean, I think that's a great example because I think, mm, I think it's. I mean, because this opens all kinds of questions. Right? What is social media use? Uh, like, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> is that a type of behavior? Can we actually isolate it from other behaviors? Are people when they use social media actually? Uh, experiencing it I'm, as I'm using social media, media or that they're doing something completely different. So if you want to measure this kind of behavior, you kind of have to put borders around it, like, and, and you have to define it in some way. So this, oh, this is a can of worms. And it's, I, I think <laughs> that, that's really exciting about psychology, because, because you can come up with a million of examples, these granular, granular examples that are super important for so many things, because you want to produce a good evidence mm. for social media use because it's used in policy, it's used in education, it's used in all these things that are super important. So yeah, I, I mean, I yeah. Um, <laughs> let, maybe let's let's have a bit of a we we need to have a break. So um, I will now go and um, stroke my ego, and um, <laughs> we'll um, see you back after the break. You are listening to Reproducibility serving you discussions of important issues in science and psychology one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? Give us a follow on Twitter at reproducibility, rate us on iTunes, and tell other early career researchers about us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over the next weeks, we will also release some special tea flavors, which are small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back to episode 12 of Reproducibility. Um, I have spent the break um, crying in a corner about how shit my research areas um, and but I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, worried about measurement as such um so I guess I guess we kind of we we got segued a bit into loads of things we got segued into Vunt and then we got segued into um social media as a concept 
Um, but I'm, I'm still not clear, like, what were the arguments that these, <laughs> these people whose names I forgot were having um, kind of before our time about measurement, um, Ivan? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, 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 the thing that was happening then uh, was that um, the very idea that you could m- measure mental properties uh, was something that was not widely accepted in the academic communities that existed at the time. Uh, so psychology was like a like a area within philosophy where you could talk about mental properties, but you couldn't actually measure them in the empirical sense of the empirical sciences that were uh, really powerful at the end of the 19th century. So this was this was seen as a as a, as a logical impossibility to do measurements. Um, and the first people who actually turned the tide here were um, philosophers who were interested in uh, psychophysics, so in, in measuring perception um, and, and measuring certain um, uh, perceptual thresholds and, and things like that. So this was very, very, very early in that sense. And the, the first discussions that they had were extremely philosophical in that sense. They were There were questions was about was measurement of psychological properties possible at all, right? Uh, And this needed to be resolved before you could go into uh, uh, doing the kind of other measurements that we have in psychological science today that psychologists do without without thinking twice Mm -hmm. about it. But but then you said that the discussion wasn't resolved at all, really. No, no, because so what, what, what happened is that basically people who were arguing that you can't do uh, psychological measurements, even on perception and on these properties that are that are related to really this really these really basic cognitive functions that we have or perceptual functions, not not cognitive. Um, they the, the people who were arguing against it were just kind of, they went their merry way or they died. Um, so it's it's not like they they resolved the discussion and the other side accepted it and that was it. But the discussion kind of simmered down, and people who were do, doing the measurements just continued doing them, and then later on expanding them to other properties and other functions. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a really big and convoluted history that I don't want to go into <laughs> here. But I, I can su- suggest a really really great book uh, <laughs> about it by Joel Mitchell. Um, that really goes into this kind of measurement that, that we can put under the, the episodes for people who want to learn more. Right? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, it's definitely interesting because we we do, you know, when we get taught, we just get assume that you can just measure things like cognition. Like, I'm looking at Sam because I naturally measure something even worse. But, like, in the stuff that you measure, I don't know, what do you think, Sam? Oh, I, I think there's huge problems in the stuff that I tend to look at in terms of the uh, information processing stuff just purely because no one examines the measurement quality. Um, so it's kind of, you can have the question about are you actually measuring something that exists, but then there's that separate conversation of do our numbers have meaning? Um, yeah. And often that goes unsaid. And when you do, you kind of peek behind that curtain. You, mm. you sort of have, you know, when you first read a paper like false positive psychology and it sort of rocks your world a little bit. 
it, you kind of have that when you start to think about measurement, I've found. Because <laughs> you just kind of go, oh, oh, this breaks everything, but on a whole different level. Mm. Um, and, and then even the conversation could break it on a whole other meta level. <laughs> I, I, I mean, and there are all these layers of these things. Because so when I talk about this measurement in the, in the 19th century, this is something very different than what we would recognize as measurement. So mm. this is much before this concept of making aggregate measures of many people in groups and then comparing two groups and doing relatively sophisticated statistics and correlations and et cetera. Uh, so this, this came later. Hmm. So all this statistical um, techniques um, that are, that are kind of uh, identified with measurement during the 20th century were not there when they were having these discussions. Uh, so this was, I mean, you could use the word primitive, but I wouldn't use it. This was something much more different than the kind of measurements that we do today. Um, so there, there are uh, multiple unresolved discussions that were had by very different communities in different countries in different periods that were kind of amalgated into the measurement that we have nowadays. Mm. But like our measurement builds on this kind of unsolid basis, doesn't it? Because I felt yeah. what I get from your discussion is that, you know, this debate wasn't resolved. And then from Sam's discussion that, you know, there are even more skeletons behind curtains and yeah. and we're just kind of, you know, like that me gif, gif or gif if we're talking about Sophia. Um, <laughs> it's just like, it's all fine. And it's like burning everywhere. And I, I sometimes feel like that. Um, but yeah, Sophia, you were you had a burning question for Evan, no? Oh yes, uh, yeah. I think um, it would be interesting to talk about um, whether these disagreements that we're seeing on open science, uh, both within the open science community, um, if that exists as such, and uh, sort of outside, um, if those disagreements about open science have anything to do with an underlying sort of implicit understanding of philosophy of science, like just differences in epistemology? Yeah, I, I, this, is, this is a great question that I was, I was thinking about for, for quite some time. Um, because when you, read, um, when you read the papers uh, that are produced within the replic replicability crisis and within the open science community who's trying to resolve the, the issues, um, you very often run into um, snippets or parts of some kind of philosophy of science. Like Popper is very popular, falsificationism is very popular, um, meal um, and nomological networks are mentioned, um, Mertonian norms are mentioned. So there are these like smatterings of either philosophy or sociology of science um, that are kind of mobilized in these discussions uh, to argue for something. Um, and uh, it's, I think it's very easy to draw the conclusion that this means that we have different epistemological camps within the open, open science movement where pe different people belong to different kind of epistemological programs. Um, but I'm very skeptical of this conclusion. Um, um, sorry, yeah. sorry, can I just interject? What is epistemology? Mm, so it's, 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 a branch, it's, a branch of, um, it's a branch of philosophy. Uh, that tells us what is knowledge and how do we justify knowledge. So how do we uh, get to learn about the world? Thanks. Um, <laughs> I feel so like the little like kid in the corner being like, 
What is <laughs> what is pancakes? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very valid question. So uh, when I say epistemological <laughs> program, I mean that's kind of a big, big view on uh, what is science, what is empirical science, how do we produce evidence, how do we justify evidence, how do we uh, uh, get to believe uh, in, in, in the scientific statements that we believe in. Um, so, um, I'm, as I said, I'm very skeptical that, that there are different, uh, that different parts of the community belong to different programs, because I think that's a very, that's a very dry philosopher's view on, on things. I don't think, um, I mean, this is a case in point, you're asking what is epistemology. I don't think practicing scientists think about this, care about this, right? But, but like couldn't that be the issue? Like, you know, like I always tell my undergrads that they need to define their key terms. You know, and if we all, we, I feel like, you know, we don't get taught any of this, um, that in the end, we all have our own little definition of epistemology. Yeah. We don't even know what that definition is. And we yeah. think that every other person will have the same one. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think, I mean, coming as a, as a, as a guy who's, who's constantly saying we need to read more H HPS, it would be weird for me to say, yeah, I don't think that's an issue. And by HPS, um, you mean history and philosophy of science? History and philosophy of science, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, but I, I do think that like practicing scientists have a very limited amount of time on their hands uh, and very, very many requirements and hoops to, to jump through, right? Uh, so you don't have time to get into these kinds of discussions. Uh, and they're often very paralyzing. Like, I think the, the atmosphere in the conversation that we're now having feels like all these questions are kind of paralyzing and too big to consider, and it just makes you feel like you should give up on everything. Right? Uh, so I, I think not getting into them all the time has its benefits and has its reasons, right? Um, but anyways, I was saying. Um, but what happens is that I think that, as you said, Sophia, I think that there's this kind of an implicit understanding of what is science that different people in the open science movement and different psychologists in general have. Um, that's in some part. That's in some part informed by different philosophers, actually. So I, I mentioned Popper. I think Popper is really f popular, um, and his philosophy trickles down into textbooks and into this kind of uh, everyday understanding of what scientists think of what science is, and how they explain it to themselves. Um, but what happens in psychology, I think it's it's super interesting. Um, is that you have all these little uh, indigenous epistemologies. So understandings of what science is that psychologists come up with that are informed by their, by their own psychology. Right? And I think this, this is what you see in open science. Okay, so um, what kind of, so I mean, okay, so in a, I, I, yeah, I mean, so we talked about this before, um, not on the podcast, but um, so like I, I really li like this label of indigenous epistemologies. But so, do you see camps then, or do you just think this is that people are just reinventing the wheel um, in in ways that you can't really um, divide into into camps that yeah. match up with existing philosophy of science? I, I think um, so. When we say camps, I, I have this image of like card-carrying members of a club. 
No, of course, I mean, like, if, if it was that clear, then we wouldn't have to yeah. talk about the question, right? Yeah. So I think it's, it's very loose and it's very implicit in the, in the sense that people don't actually articulate it uh, to themselves or to other people. They just disagree about it mm. without explicitly stating what the disagreement is about very often. Um, so I do think there are differences. So, um, like, um, this last paper that I'm, I'm trying, that, that's going to get published out of my thesis is about exactly about these um, indigenous epistemologies in the open science movement in psychology. And uh, the indigenous epistemology is a term that comes from uh, another historian, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Smith. Um, so I didn't coin it. Um, but um, what you see there is um, this idea that scientists are biased and this whole uh, bias psychology, this, this decision-making kind of thinking about what, what science is, is really informative for the open science movement, or a big part of it. Um, and I think this is, this is the dominant indigenous epistemology that you have in the open science movement. This kind of distrust in the idea that uh, humans and scientists as humans can be rational actors, right? Hmm. And that we need to control for their biases in certain ways, and then some of the ways that we control for those biases systematically within a science like psychology are problematic. That the system doesn't work for controlling the irrational scientists, right? Yeah, I think I think. Oh well, Sophia disagrees. No, no. I mean, so I just. I'm not sure if I disagree. I think I probably I probably agree. Um, but it's more that, yeah, sure, it is it is focused on on these biases. But I get the impression that there is an idea that oh, as soon as we have reined in these biases, we're going to be fine, and we're all going to be able to be super rational agents, just be super super objective, um, and there'll be absolutely no problem anymore. Which I think is actually very dangerous as well. But that doesn't that doesn't contribute to you at all. I, yeah. I'm realizing while I'm talking, so <laughs> I agree. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's an important distinction because it's so. I mean, you can you can approach this thing in two ways. I think um, one is discussing the psychology of the scientist. So what is the like uh, the individual rationality of a scientist trying to um, uh, publish? Uh, evidence uh, that is robust and that's truthful and etc. Um, that's one way of looking at it and that's the, the, the bias focused one. Um, but uh, the other way is at looking at science as a system. So thinking of uh, science as a system of institutions that let these actors act in the most rational way. Um, and these, these two things can't be the same, right? So you have to have some kind of an idea of what is the science system that you want to build up if the current one is faulty. Um, so this, I think, this part is much more informed by by general philosophical, right? Right? Um, if if you look at the um, the OSF replicability paper. Uh, you mean the open science, like, what's a group? Collaboration. Yeah, collaboration? Yeah, yeah, collaboration, sorry, yeah, OSC. OSC, yeah, that paper, I think the first five or six references are to very philosophical uh, papers and authors, uh, to logical positivists, actually, to uh, Hempel 
uh, and to these these really important uh, analytical philosophy of science works that tell uh, that that told us what is what is science and how is how does science properly work. So this paper really kind of harks back to this kind of view of the science system and what is the proper view of the sciences. Um, so I, I think. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely correct that there are different visions, like philosophical visions of, 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 of what is the correct epistemological pro program and what is the science system that we want to build up. And these are going to have to be articulated more explicitly. And we're going to have to have a disagreement on what kind of a program do we want to support, because mm -hmm. there are more than one. Right? So, so in um, kind of going forward, would you say to to change psychology, would, would you be in the camp of the kind of we need to burn it all down and we need to rebuild it or the in the camp of we can change it from the inside and, you know, we'll just kind of change little aspects and at some point we'll be pointing, you know, the ship will be pointing in the right direction? Yeah, I, I think here it's really my individual bias as a human being. I'm usually in discussions like this, I'm usually uh, very often on the most radical option out there. <laughs> and that's not saying much, that's not saying much about the issue at hand, just about my proclivity. Um, so I, I, I do think, I, I am hopeful that the whole replicability crisis will lead into even more deeper crises. So even in, into even more, into deeper reconsiderations of what is the proper way to conduct psychological science. Um, but, but on the other hand, um, judging from the previous historical episodes, I don't think that's necessarily the most probable scenario. I think, I think we're going to, what's going to happen is trying to reform what we have currently. Because that's already that's already too radical for many of the people that are really the mover of sh movers and shakers of psychology as it is. So this is already a, a big pill to swallow as it is. So I guess then from, from your perspective, thinking on a kind of historical and philosophy science perspective, um, so we, we have this kind of collection of reforms that I guess a lot of us in the community are wanting to stick. Um, but then looking back at previous reform efforts, so uh, for example, mentioned uh, Fiona Fiddler from the Black Goat podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, talking about the no hypothesis significance testing kind of debate that sort of flared up and then sort of fizzled out and is now maybe coming back again. Um, from a kind of histor historical perspective or a philosophy of science, I guess, do you think there's a way that we can sort of help to make some of these things stick rather than just kind of fizzle out by the wayside so that we can, so that we can actually build things up? Or burn them down even more? I mean, it's already on fire, let's be honest. <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah I, don't, I don't, it's it's really hard to answer this without giving generic answers. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the right way to go about it is really community building um, and this kind of sense that um, this is an effort of uh, like-minded individuals who really want to improve the science that they're participating in. 
Um, Do you think... No, so I, I was just talking about community. Like, naturally, we are currently in a time of a lot of change because of social media in communities. So kind of, I guess, my hope is in a way that because social media has been able to cause... I think, you know, we would probably not be having conversations like these on our level if we weren't on social media. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering just how you felt like... Do you think that maybe that will kind of change the dynamic of communities there and like help that sort of cause? I think I think that's already happening definitely. And um, I, I think that's that's the, the kind of impression that, that, that Fiona had in, in that mm. black code. How how different it was because of the social media and because of how low the, the bar was for joining the particip- participating in these discussions versus the discussions that were happening decades ago. Mm. Um, but for, for a really like transformative or something that's going to really radically change things, um, I think uh, going at institutions and institutionalizing things or attacking or changing institutions is the way to go. And I think um, you can look at, a, an, a, at an interesting comparison that's very close to, to the open science movement that's open access. Um, where open access also started as um, a grassroots movement by scientists who perceived something dysfunctional in how the science system worked, publishing in particular. Uh, And they came up with all these kinds of initiatives and really exciting things that went into all kinds of directions since since the Budapest Initiative started in the early 2000s. a bunch of stuff in the open access movement was really co-opted and, and taken over by the very corporate stakeholders who created the inefficiencies and the really dysfunction in the beginning. Um, so the open access movement that we had 10 years ago versus the open access movement that we ha- have nowadays is a very different beast. Uh, and it's much, uh, for me, for example, when I was a student who started getting into open access, I was really relatively uncritical and I was all for open access. But now I'm much more restrained in that sense. I can see how there are problems with open access that are not resolved in how some advocates are pushing for it or how some publishing houses are pushing for it. And I think this is very similar to to what's going to happen to the open science movement. I think you can see it already. Um, And that there's pushback and that some people feel like uh, it's, it's some of it might get co-opted, or some of some of the things might not sit well with some people. Some people, I think, feel that it's all a bunch of moralizers who are telling everybody you're doing shitty research. Um, so things are going to change, um, but to actually um, make change happen, I think you have to go into you have to go into mandates. You have to go into things that are actually going to push larger numbers of people than the, the believers into, into changing things. Well, that's a really interesting note to end on. Um, interesting and, and kind of, I don't know, I have very mixed feelings. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what I'm feeling anymore. What is feeling? But yes, uh, thank you very, very much for coming on our podcast for a second time. And I think, again, you've raised more questions than answers. So maybe we'll, we'll have to have you back at some point again. Um, but yeah, I'm, 
I'm, I hope our listeners enjoyed um, learning as much as, as we did here. Um, and yeah, um, thank you very much for listening as well for, for our listeners out there. And we'll see you um, for our next episode. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.